You're listening to Leading Up with Udemy. This podcast is your guide to developing your skills as an emerging or seasoned leader. I'm Alan Todd, your host and the Vice President of Leadership Development at Udemy. Together, we can work, lead, and live differently to create a better world. I was really excited to sit down with Hassan Osman this week on the podcast. Well, I love the way Hassan thinks about leading in a hybrid world. He teaches us that we have to be extra proactive and responsive in order to show up and be seen when you're not in the office every single day. I thought that was great. And as a remote or hybrid worker, you want to also think about balancing the two requirements. Just like a leader would think about that, you want to think about your organization's requirements and your personal requirements. You also want to think about and be cognizant of what does this role entail? What are the business needs? What are the customer business needs for that particular organization that you're working for? And then you also want to balance it with your own personal needs. You know, you've got family to take care of. You've got some sort of a, an arrangement where you need to be home on Fridays, whatever that is, being cognizant of both and not just thinking maybe about your personal ones is going to go a long way. This week on Leading Up, I'm speaking with Hassan Osman about leading remote and hybrid teams, thriving as a hybrid team member, and learning how to become a better communicator. Hassan is currently the SVP of Professional Services at NWN Carousel, a leading cloud communications service provider. He has over 300,000 students taking his Udemy courses and holds degrees from the American University in Beirut, Harvard, and Carnegie Mellon. In his free time, he writes short books for busy managers, many of which are Amazon bestsellers. He documents his writing journey on his podcast, Writer on the Side. Hassan, welcome to the podcast. Alan, thank you so much for having me on. I'm super excited about this. Great to have you today. So let's start with hybrid work and the future workplace. I can find a story most any day. The CEO wants everyone in the office. The employees all want to work from home. Let's just start there. Where's the big disconnect? Yeah, let me share a little secret with you, Alan. No one has figured this out yet. That's primarily the reason why you're seeing those stories pop up every once in a while. You know, on one end of the spectrum, you've got companies that want to focus on purely remote work. And then on the other end of the spectrum, it's we want to go back to the office. And then the majority are somewhere in the middle where they're trying to kind of understand, what do we do? How do we do this? Uh, three days on site, two days at home, or is it the reverse? So it really is, you know, the jury is still out there and companies are still trying to figure out what works best for them. How do you define hybrid work? Yeah, I like to think about it visually, right? So if you think about where work gets done, right, the location of where work gets done, there's a spectrum of maybe this sort of line where it starts at the main office at the bottom, and then it goes a step above that where you have flexible locations or satellite offices. Flexible locations are more like co-working spaces. A step above that is working from home. And then a step above that finally is working from anywhere where it could be on a sailboat in the middle of the ocean if you want to. So that's primarily how we think about hybrid work, where it cuts sort of across the middle there between working from anywhere and then working from the office. But there's another dimension to this, and that is when work gets done, meaning the dimension of time. And if you think about a separate line there, so like a little chart, where is like a vertical line and then when is a horizontal line, with when work gets done, you can think about 
for example, set office hours, let's say 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. or 9 to 6. And then you've got flexible work hours. And then at the far end, you have anytime work hours, where it doesn't matter if it's at 2 a.m. as long as you get the work done, right? So we've got this little chart where now you think about where and when work gets done, and you start thinking about how you plot your different team members or your organization uh, or organizational units in different areas there. And hybrid is somewhere in the middle there, in that kind of cloud area in the middle. But then you start thinking about different experiences and that it's not one size fits all for your organization. I think that's a helpful framework. So where it gets done, headquarters or fully remote and somewhere in the middle, and when it gets done during office hours all the way at the other end can be done anytime, is hybrid management going to look different by role in a company as opposed to one homogeneous sort of structure? Yeah, great question. I think there's no one size fits all. And that applies at both the individual level as well as the team level. So let me give you a couple of examples on that chart of where and when work gets done. Let's say you have a nuclear power plant engineer, right? That nuclear power plant engineer needs to work from the main office from the power plants, you know, you can't they take their work with them. And they have to work for the most part during set office hours, let's say 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. That's their shift. And that from for that particular employee, you're now in that bottom left corner of that chart. But let's say you take someone who works in IT support. So that employee B who works in IT support needs to also work during set office hours, let's say 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. because they need to support their colleague in case their system is down or they need some sort of help with their IT systems. But then that employee can work from home because their work doesn't need to be on site. They can dial in remotely. They can do a lot of troubleshooting without being on the premises. Right. So that's a second example. A third, really quick, is let's say you have someone who works in graphic design or marketing. Their sort of work is more project-based and deadline-based. So they can work from anywhere and they work, can work at any time because you don't care as long as you get that project done on Thursday afternoon. Right. So they are on the far top right of that chart when you look at it. So different functions, different roles within the organization can have different hybrid work arrangements. And you can apply this not just at the individual level, but let's say as a function, right? Sales, for example. One of the things I heard, I spent a good piece of last year working with the conference board, a nonprofit think tank in New York, studying leading in a hybrid world. And one of our findings is exactly what you said, which is nobody has this figured out. Is there a possibility that you create a two-tier system or that you create second-class citizens or that those that are more remote are more likely to get laid off and less likely to be promoted? There are things going on about that that people are pretty worried about. So to clarify to the listeners, one of the top things that a hybrid work leader should think about is avoiding what's called the two-tier system. And the two-tier system is inadvertently causing a system of first-class versus second-class employees, where those employees who show up to the office are treated as first-class, and those who are working primarily remotely are treated as second-class, right? So you'll hear this theme of inclusion and fairness being two important things that every hybrid work leader should focus on. And you want to make sure that you treat all your employees in an equitable and fair way, because there's this potential bias that can happen where 
you know, it's not by design. It's There's no malicious intent. It's just the fact that you see people that are showing up to the office as a manager. You're going to treat them a little bit differently. And every employee's thoughts around that is, am I going to get promoted at the same rate? Am I going to get the same career opportunities as everyone else if I don't show up to the office? So it's super important that if you're going to implement a hybrid work management policy or, you know, give your managers or second line leaders some sort of leeway with this, that you instill in them this idea that you have to be cognizant of not creating that separation by focusing on what's called a remote first culture. Let's suppose that you're a a team leader for this thought experiment and your company's hybrid and your CEO said, we're going to be in two days a week, two or three, doesn't matter. So the employees are like, hey, I'm more productive at home and I'm doing well. And your employees are objecting. What advice do you have for the manager, the team leader, to sort of sell this idea or make their team feel good about it? So I think the top tip here is to over-communicate on the why, meaning understanding and sharing with your employees that you want to balance the needs of the business with the needs of the employees, right? So yes, the needs of the employees are important, work-life balance, flexibility, and all of that. But then there's the need of the business where If your customers expect some sort of face-to-face time, let's say you work in sales, or you you have some sort of on-site requirement, access to a lab that you can't provide remotely, many, many different use cases there, then you also want to be fair by thinking about both those aspects. And my big advice to a lot of team leaders is that, look, this isn't a one-way door decision to go back to like Jeff Bezos's way of thinking, right? One-way door decisions versus two-way door decisions. This is not one way. So if you try something out and it doesn't work, you can pivot and try something else to iterate on that, right? So it's sort of a learning process. If an employee thinks they can have the right case for it and they are more productive and there's no sort of impact of the business, then why not? Give that a month few weeks, try it out. And if there's some issues with that arrangement, then you can go back and revisit what you need to do. No one's got it figured out. There's no one right way. If you wish to create these flexible workplaces, which are critical to attracting and retaining talent, don't create a two-class environment, you know, where there's the in-person or the remotes that people feel differently. Clear about the why. I think that's really good advice. And then I really love your concept taking from Jeff Bezos of the two-way door, which of course we can course correct. So this isn't like an all or nothing is what you're saying. You can go out and do it and experiment and evolve it. Yeah, absolutely. And the key is that last statement you mentioned. When you're thinking about any sort of hybrid work policy, when you start out with the idea that you know you can course correct and you can iterate, that's going to help mitigate a lot of the stress and the angst that comes along with making big decisions related to the hybrid work arrangement that you have with your employees. Yeah. So how did you get into this model of work? You've been doing remote work and hybrid work longer than most. What was it that attracted you early on? Yeah, I mean, I've actually been working in a hybrid environment for a long time. It's just that we never called it hybrid, right? I used to work with Ernst & Young back then. Now it's called EY in management consulting. And a lot of times it's working with both clients as well as internal employees in that hybrid arrangement. Sometimes you're in the office, sometimes you're remote, sometimes you're flying out to clients and helping them out there. So it's always been hybrid. And I've sort of over the years built a skill set of here's what the pain points are, here's how to avoid them, here's how to lead in a remote environment, and really lived it for a while as a practitioner. So a lot of excitement there came from me actually living it for many, many years. Yeah. And has the world changed in your mind now in 
in remote management and hybrid? In other words, did the pandemic make, are we better at it than the way you saw it five years ago, 10 years ago? Oh, 100%, 100%. I think, and I'll give you a small anecdote, like people didn't even know what WebEx or Zoom or Microsoft Teams were. In the middle of a pandemic, for people that I would assume they would have known this like 10 years ago, but they never used collaboration technologies. So (laughs) yeah, definitely changed. (laughs) Yeah, for the better. All right, I want to switch gears. We talked about all of this hybrid from the perspective of the manager, the leader, the CEO, the team. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on now I'm an individual contributor. I'd love to become a manager. I'd love to step up to management. I want to do better. Give me some advice on how to be a good hybrid worker and also how to be a good remote worker. Yeah, that's a great question. So let me start with an umbrella answer for you. And as a remote or hybrid worker, you want to also think about balancing the two requirements. Just like a leader would think about that, you want to think about your organization's requirements and your personal requirements. You also want to think about and be cognizant of what does this role entail? What are the business needs? What are the customer business needs for that particular organization that you're working for? And then you also want to balance it with your own personal needs. You know, you've got family to take care of. You've got some sort of an arrangement where you need to be home on Fridays, whatever that is, being cognizant of both and not just thinking maybe about your personal ones is going to go a long way, right? Again, being open with your manager or leader about here's what would work for me. Is there any sort of flexibility that we can work through? Uh, that could meet both those objectives is going to be great and, again, go a long way. The idea here, Alan, is to sort of respect the company's hybrid work policy, but also make sure that you set healthy boundaries for yourself, right? So self-care is super important because you can also tilt the other way, where because you're working in a hybrid environment, you're now sort of always on and having some sort of a line where you say, I'm shutting down at 6 p.m. and really kind of going to focus on family and personal needs as opposed to just nonstop throughout the night, right? So so things like that to kind of be aware of. So that's sort of the umbrella statement. But then if I were to summarize how to be more visible in just two simple words, those are proactive and responsive, meaning be proactive and be responsive. And really, if you think about it, it's not just in a hybrid work or a remote work environment. It just sort of amplifies the need for those when you're working in that sort of arrangement. Being proactive just means raising your hand, volunteering, asking about how you can be helpful to your team, asking about how you can be helpful to other cross-functional teams that are not directly maybe in your chain of management command. And then being responsive. It's just saying that you're going to be doing something and actually doing it, following through, getting back to people on time, particularly in a hybrid environment where someone sends you an email, it's very easy to kind of dismiss it or getting back to it in 48 hours as opposed to a quick, hey, I got it, or I'll, I'll get back to you in a couple of days. So minor things, but th- that really mean a lot in hybrid environment that can get you further in your career and advance that for you. I love that. Be proactive, be responsive. buzz around Gen AI isn't going anywhere. Leaders and managers are key to identifying how their companies can use the technology and creating a plan to grow their employees' skills. Learn how Udemy can help at business.udemy.com forward slash 
GenAI now. I want to go back to something you said about having boundaries and self-care and communicating those with your boss. One thing I've heard a lot of people say early career and just anybody in these individual contributor in a role where there's such a power imbalance, they're like, I don't feel comfortable communicating those boundaries. I mean, do you see that? Do you have advice for people? Like, how do you get up the courage to actually say, I have boundaries when you actually don't have the courage to say it? What could we do to help people that are that are stuck there? There's no one solution fits all with this either. And then I would stay away from flat out saying, I have boundaries. You definitely want to think about a more diplomatic way of saying it and how you position it. But I would start with a prerequisite though, Alan, and that is making sure that you are adding value to your role, to your organization, because it's a give and take world with everything. You know, you show that you can actually do the job and excel at it. Your management team is going to take that next step and push on helping you out to make sure that you are in a comfortable environment, right? So how do you position it? I would say definitely putting it forth as a question as opposed to a demand. So explaining the problem, saying, hey, here's the situation. I know we've got those calls at 4 p.m. on this day. I was wondering if there's any sort of flexibility where I drop at the bottom of the hour because I've got this personal thing I need to take care of. I'd hate to be a burden on the team, but if there's some sort of flexibility to move it up, I'd be happy to kind of reach out to other peers and ask them if there's they're okay with doing that so that you don't go through that burden, right? So things like that, where again, you position it and pose it as questions as opposed to demands or hard lines is a good way to go. I think it's fascinating because you completely reframed the answer as ask a question, you know, don't dictate your boundaries. You also said it's deeply contextualized. I want to grab those points and switch gears to communication skills. At Udemy, we have 62 million learners on the platform and they do searches. So you've got tech skills and soft skills. And on the soft skills, communications just dominates, right? How do I communicate in any kind of form? How do I speak? How do I write? How do I influence people? And you've mastered the art of quick communications with your short books for busy managers, Amazon bestsellers, your podcast, like this is your sweet spot. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how do we get better at this? And do people appreciate in your mind, do they know they need to become better communicators, either written or spoken? Yeah, so quite a bit to unpack there. Great questions. I think everyone highly appreciates better communication, whether you're on the receiving end or on the end of you actually communicating things out. And the reason why is because it also minimizes a lot of the back and forth, right? So when you communicate clearly, you're hopefully going to get a clear answer back or get to what exactly we want to get to. And let me kind of share a couple of thoughts on that especially working in a hybrid environment, remote environment. One is this idea called the propinquity effect. So the propinquity effect is this theory developed by psychologists at MIT that basically says that the more you interact with someone, the more you'll befriend them, the more you'll like them, and eventually lead to some sort of a trust component between you and them. So when you're working in a hybrid or remote environment, there's a high tendency to work in silos. You're kind of out there for three days, no one knows what you're doing, and then you hop in on one of those calls and give an update. 
Whereas if you over-communicate with them, right, you touch base with them every once in a while, you start building that affinity, that mutual trust, where you become more effective and more productive working with them as a team. Right? So, so just keep that in mind as whether you're a individual contributor or even a leader, right, with your peers and your management team as well. And so a question becomes, how do you communicate in a hybrid or remote environment? And there's this concept called the pyramid of communication. So the pyramid of communication is a simple pyramid, really more like a triangle, that shows the different modes of communication as you go up that triangle. And so at the bottom is the is just email, which is highly asynchronous form of communication, very dry. You can't read tone usually. You can't get pick up on any subtleties. Above that is instant messaging, where you have a little bit of more synchronous communication. Above that is audio-only communication, so picking up the phone and calling someone. A step above that is video conferencing, so you get to see someone while you're talking to them. And then finally, or I should say a step above that is uh, telepresence. So this is like video conferencing on steroids, where you really see every single little detail. And then at the tip of the pyramid at the top is face-to-face communication. And the idea behind this is that the higher up you, you are on this pyramid, then the more intimate and cohesive the team's traits. So if you spend a lot of time emailing with someone, then taking it up a couple of notches, scheduling a video conversation with them is going to build that sort of again, cohesive traits and trust with that team member a lot more. So things to keep in mind about how you communicate in general between the propinquity effect and over-communicating and then where you fall on that pyramid of communication. Okay, I have a wife, kids. I have three daughters who are college graduates and work in the workplace. And I routinely inquire as to why everything is done via text messages. And I'm constantly (laughs) invoking the pyramid. And what I've noticed that my three daughters are early career people, recent college grads. And there's just, I don't want to generalize against the entire population there, but they feel so much more comfortable with asynchronous communications. How do you get people to move up that pyramid when they think it's just easier. And they actually argue, no, it's easier and faster. And I look at the data on like personality psychology and say, but we're becoming further and further apart as humans. And we don't have mirror neurons firing. These emotional connections are weakening. So what do you see in that regard? Yeah, so this is a challenge across the board for sure. I should start by saying in some certain contexts, having texts or async communication has its advantages. So, you know, speed to get to someone if it's something really quick or you need some sort of a record with an email to make sure that, you know, multiple people are copied on it. So it's not like we want to completely dismiss tech, text or email. It's just that in certain contexts, especially when there is a contentious conversation, especially when there's brainstorming involved, some sort of gray matter stimulating discussion, you do need to move up that pyramid because um, you're just going to waste everyone's time and yours as well, right? It's, it becomes very frustrating. It's lost in translation. You're not picking up on body language, facial expressions. You're not getting what the main intent behind what you're trying to say is, right? So a lot of times you feel like you're going to get you know, strangle someone through email, but then you get on a call. It's like, oh, oh, that's what you meant. No worries. We got it. And so I think the education at the organization level needs to be focused on what type of communication 
uh, is needed for what type of context or what type of action you're trying to take, right? So I would say that's one way to kind of educate the organization or your team in particular to say, let's come up with a communication plan. If it's something urgent, text is fine. If it's something that requires more than a couple of sentences, write an email. If it's something where you think we need to have at least three back and forth emails on, let's pick up the phone and talk. If it's a group discussion, let's have a video conference, right? So things like that, I think, is going to help you and your team for sure. Yeah, I like what you're describing, sort of context dependent, like face to face, if it's very strategic or emotional and it requires that level of gravity. But if it's quick and simple, you know, text or email could be just fine. Any other tips on communicating either via email or um, just just some tips for our listeners where you see people making egregious mistakes. And you're like, here, let me give you some simple ones. <laughs> here's some don't do's and here's some do's. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm going to give you three quick ones on email specifically, because that's a huge time waster in organizations. First one is assign tasks in your emails using what's called the three W's. So if you're a leader, if you're a manager, or even if you're a team member who's leading something, use the three W's to assign tasks. What are the three W's? It's the who, the what, and the when, right? So the who is a specific person. So it's Alan. It's not, hey, team, right? So it's Alan. The what is a specific ask. So instead of, hey, I need the latest status on what's going on, say something like, I need a couple of slides in PowerPoint on the status, one with a timeline, the other with five bullet points on status, right? So you're being very clear not making an assumptions. And then the when is a big one. When meaning, when do you need things done by? Instead of saying a few days, which to some might mean three and others might mean 33, uh, <laughs> giving them a specific day, date, and time is going to help. You know, Thursday, July 16th, 5 p.m. Eastern time, right? So who, what, and when, keep it simple. You're going to get a lot more traction there. Another is try to keep your sentences or your emails five sentences or less get to the point, keep it brief, keep it concise. You know, you don't need to go on for seven paragraphs on it. However, if you absolutely need to send a long email, then break it into two parts. Part one is a quick summary, which is five sentences or less, and then add the details for any additional context that you want to send out, All right? So kind of keep it there. And then the final third quick one is make your emails scannable. Right? No one has the time to read emails. People scan them these days. So use bullet points, use subheadings, use, you know, maybe highlight things, bold them out that you want to kind of call them out. If you're asking someone specific by their name, kind of bold it or highlight it, whatever you want to do, uh, just make them scannable. So I can talk for a lot more on that, but I'll leave you with those, just those three. <laughs> Well, those are a great set of tips, like all of this communicating, email, who, what, when, get to the point, make your point, five sentences or less, like really good stuff and scannable bullets. You've had a remarkable run with mastering the day job and having a creative outlet on the side. How do you balance the full-time work with all of these creative outlets that you've done just phenomenal with? Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words. I appreciate that. And very, very simply, this is fun for me. Like, I absolutely enjoy teaching. Udemy is my go-to platform for teaching. I encourage anyone who's interested or has got knowledge that they'd like to share with the world. Udemy makes it super simple for you to go and kind of 
publish and it even guides you through the whole process. But to me, it's personal fulfillment. Like I just enjoy it. I love kind of writing out my thoughts. I just enjoy teaching. So whether it's in written form, whether it's a book or it's a course, I balance it because, again, it's like, you know, some people love watching Netflix, which is no issue with that at all. I binge watch as well. Some people love skiing, swimming, whatever. I actually enjoy sitting down, a little bit of a nerdy side of me and kind of writing out and sharing knowledge with others. So it starts there. And I highly recommend that you think of this not as sort of like a side hustle, but really think of it as skill development, as something that you want to do because you really want to do it, even if it didn't make the additional income for you. Yeah. So you're, you start with, you have a passion for this. So I think you have to find your passion and let's say once you have your passion and topic, you figured those things out. Is there a process you follow? Do you make an outline? Do you write it? Do you watch TV? Are you sitting on the couch? Do you have quiet time? Like any kind of inside tips on how to do that? I, I absolutely have uh, several tips on that. First, let me start with the first step, which is if you want to write a book, let's say, which is a similar process to publishing a course, by the way, as well. But I would start with the interest. But then there's also two other components. There's experience and, and market, meaning think of a Venn diagram, those three circles intersecting. So interest, meaning choose something you're interested in. Bucket two or circle two is experience, meaning something you're, you have some sort of experience in. And then the third is having some sort of a market, active buy-sell market for that topic, right? The people are interested in learning about, let's say, chat GPT, or they're interested in learning about AI. So you want to make sure that it's there and then kind of focusing on the intersection of those three. If it's a topic that meets those three criteria, uh, I usually kind of go for it. So kind of select that. But then I really start out with, Step one is coming up with a title and subtitle for whatever I want to create. If it's a book, I want to make sure I nail down the topic where it's small enough for people to consume without trying to solve world hunger. And then it takes less time for me to kind of create as opposed to four years spending writing a book. It usually takes me three to six months. And then literally, as you mentioned, Alan's kind of starting with an outline. Big thoughts. How do you want to think about structure and so on and so forth? And then filling in the gaps on that. Uh, while I'm listening to music and 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 writing uh, writing things out, what kind of music are you listening to when you're writing? I basically uh, have um, Spotify, and I'm on either the latest hits or or pure classical music, so Mozart. So it really depends on what I'm doing. I'm so glad you asked this question. I haven't been asked this before. If I'm writing, it's Mozart or some classical music. If I'm brainstorming or researching, I just lis listen to the latest hits. I consume everything. And the reason why is because when I'm writing, if I hear lyrics in my mind, it screws up my flow with what I'm trying to write. Whereas if it's pure music and it's sort of classical music, I can focus a lot more. Oh, that's beautiful. So is this in the morning, nighttime, evenings, weekends? What's the, what's the time? How do you block the time? Or do you? Yeah, so... My advice to everyone out there is if you want to write a book on the side, and I have, by the way, you mentioned my website, Writer on the Side. I have a book called Write Your Book on the Side that answers all those questions. And it's 100% free, by the way. So you can grab it on Amazon or on the site. So just really quick, five days a week, 30 minutes a day, without exception. So take the weekends off just to kind of think about your book, whether it's writing or 
researching or coming up with ideas about your book cover, whatever it is, just keep that momentum going. That's how I started out. Now it's a little bit different after 18 books. Like I, I honestly do it when I'm inspired. Like I can go five days just nonstop and then get a book out there. And then other times it's like, I don't want to deal with writing. Like I'll just, it'll take me two weeks to get back into it. So it's very spotty now, but it used to be regimented five days a week and 30 minutes every day. And it takes me six, it took me six months when I was starting out on a part-time basis to get a book published. Yeah. So we had Dory Clark on the podcast who wrote a book called The Long Game. And when you said, you talk about your process, it just made me think about Dory. And one of the things she says is that early, this can feel kind of painful and there's no results and no results and no results, right? And like success isn't, it's not linear, it's exponential. Like you might not see anything for a long time and then all of a sudden you see a lot. For people that are struggling, is this instant success or do I think about the long game here? And is there, you know, is there a period of muddling through in which you just want, you're dying to just quit and you've got to persevere? Yeah, wonderful question. And I'm a big fan of Dory Clark too. Fully, fully subscribe to that. I think a book or a course is a business card on steroids, right? That's how I think about it. So definitely the long game on the personal branding that you don't want to think just about what the return is on this particular book or this particular course. You really want to think about how is this going to build up over time? And I'll give you an anecdote. I started with Udemy in 2013. You know, it was okay getting some students here or there. It was a trickle. But because I was publishing courses about virtual teams and online work and communication, when 2020 hit and COVID, you know, basically affected us all, my sort of subscriptions or my course attendance skyrocketed. Like it was just like a crazy, crazy shoot like with both the book and the courses about that. So if you think about it, 2013 to 2020 is seven years, right? Now, of course, I updated the courses and all of that throughout, but still the initial seed was there and, you know, stars aligned and that kind of really helped there. So I, I think the same way with every single product I put out there, whether it's a book or a course that, yes, it is cumulative, but you're playing the long game and don't be short sighted about this. It really will pay off at some point later in the future. Yeah, I love it. So Hassan, as we wrap up here, we have a question we ask all of our guests, and that is, what are you curious about and learning now? So the big one is for me right now, Alan, is this whole chat GPT AI revolution. I mean, generative AI specifically, right? You know, how is this going to affect everything from the author side? So me writing books on the side, creating content on Udemy, as well as how is it going to affect my day-to-day -day job in the workplace, right? So how is this disrupting the world? I'm going to give you a quick anecdote here. So I write those short books for busy managers. When I was writing my last book about presenting to executives, I started using ChatGPT. And then after I saw how insane it is, I said, I'm going to stop writing it and I'm going to write a book about ChatGPT using the help of ChatGPT. And I managed to get that out there within a week. We talked about three to six months for a regular book. And then that took me only a week to get published, obviously with a caveat that ChatGPT helped. But think about the productivity lift that you get, not just from writing books, but also other tasks and day-to-day -day tasks. So to me, I'm just fascinated with how that's going to change things going forward. And the big question for me that I'm researching now is not how those 
tools can help us write better, but how can they help you write in your own style? Right. So it's like taking what I've done in the past, loading the tool with it, and then coming up with an email or a short book or a paper in my own style as opposed to its own style or the collective knowledge of what's out there on the internet. I'm just dying to ask a follow up question. Is there a downside to chat GPT that you see as sort of Faustian bargain? Are we trading our soul or are we losing something as humans if we start to meld? with machines at that level? What's the, is there a downside? There is a downside and I'll tell you what it is. At this point, a lot of people are treating it as a replacement and not as an aid. To me, ChatGPT today should be viewed as, let's say, an intern who is trying to help you out with your day-to-day job. So they know some sort of context about what you're trying to do, but they can't replace you and the onus is still on you to be able to review that information and guide it and, you know, create something that you're proud to put your name on it as a stamp, right? So I think that's where right now we're seeing the downside. It's like people are using it just as a replacement. Keep in mind that ChatGPT today does hallucinate. So it's still creating things that are not true, just blatantly false. And people are just submitting them as is on either content blogs or what have you. But I think there's tremendous potential There's a course on Udemy that I have called ChatGPT for Better Business Communication that's been doing fairly well. And people are kind of taking, you know, how do I apply that in my day-to-day job without losing a piece of me (laughs) and using it again as an aid, not as a replacement. Yeah, I think we'll end it right there. Hassan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. Thanks again to Hassan Osman for joining us on the podcast. Follow Leading Up, a podcast from Udemy Business, wherever you find your podcasts. Listen to new episodes every Wednesday. Did you learn something new this episode? If you did, and I hope you did, consider telling a friend about the show or sharing the show on LinkedIn. We want to inspire as many leaders as we can. To learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you develop leaders at scale, and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up podcast is produced by Udemy in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Alex Vickmanis, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Danielle Roth, and Carter Wogan. Our original theme is by Soundboard. Soundboard.